Hey, let me begin by reading something, but I'm going to have you first turn to John chapter 14, book number four in the New Testament. But as you turn there, um, I don't want to assume that everybody here knows who Charles Spurgeon was. I know that that's probably a name that you hear often. Um, he's one of the most quotable guys for pastors. But Charles Spurgeon, he was um, an English pastor in London who was born in 1834, and he went to heaven in 1892. But he, he said this in one of his sermons that I think is, is relevant to our time together this weekend, and um, especially for all of us that... Um, whether whether you talk with people, or you turn on the news, or you read the newspaper, and and you see the condition of the world, and you see the condition of the church, and and, and even people that you know in the church, and and as you look at their life, and and sometimes, you know, if we don't see everything that's happening in our life through the perspective of Jesus, we can begin to lose hope quickly, right? Um, but Spurgeon said this, um, and I, and I'd like to start our time together with it. He wrote, quote, I believe, brethren, that whenever the church of God declines, one of the most effectual ways of reviving her is to preach much truth concerning the Holy Spirit. After all, he is the very breath of the church. Where the Spirit of God is, is power. If the Spirit be withdrawn, then the vitality of the godliness begins to decline and we are backbiting. Let us turn to the Spirit of God, crying, Quicken thou me in thy way. Or in other words, he's saying, Make me alive again, God. If we sorrowfully perceive that any church is growing lukewarm, be it our prayer that the Holy Spirit may work graciously for its revival. Let us return to the Lord. Let us seek again to be baptized into the Holy Spirit and into fire, and we shall yet again behold the wonderful works of the Lord. He sets before us an open door, and if we enter not, we ourselves are to be blamed. Wow. And that's why when, when Michael and Matt shared with me a year ago, I mean, this is something that was in the planning for a year when they had shared with me a year ago of wanting to do this refresh conference again and the subject would be the person and work of the Holy Spirit. My response was, yay, <laughs> you know, amen. Because I'll tell you, there's a lot of churches today, they do not talk about God the Holy Spirit anymore. You know, God the Holy Spirit has become the weird uncle, you know what I mean? It's like God the Father, God the Son, we totally get them, but God the Holy Spirit has become this weird uncle at family gatherings that everyone wants to hush up about and just to, and just to imagine he's not really here. But I'll tell you, the vitality of the church depends on the presence and power of God the Holy Spirit. And so I want you to think about this. You are spending a weekend doing something that a whole lot of churches are not doing, and that is learning what the Bible teaches us about the third person of the Godhead, which is amazing. So John chapter 14, we're going to start by reading verses 16 and 17, and then I'm going to have you turn over to um, the following book, which is the book of Acts, to Acts chapter 1 verse 8. So, but let's begin with John chapter 14 verses 16 and 17, and and I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. So if you have this translation, then you're, you're good. It says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, 
to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now let's flip over to book number five, the next book, Acts chapter one. So go right, come to the first chapter of the book of Acts and verse eight, a verse that we should all be familiar with, Acts 1.8. There Jesus, before he ascends back to heaven, he tells his disciples this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this weekend. And we thank you, Lord, that you have an objective in mind. Lord, it's not by accident that we're opening up the Bible and we're learning about the Holy Spirit. It's not by accident that we've gathered here as um, a body of believers and visitors um, that, that have been invited to come and be a part of this conference. And there are things that you're teaching us about our relationship with you. And I believe, God, that you want to take us further, you want to take us deeper, and the fruit of it um, impacting not only our personal lives, but us as a congregation, as a community of believers collectively in this part of the world here um, um, on the Sunshine Coast. And, and we pray that as we learn about you, that you would also be filling us with a greater and deeper sense of the presence of, of your spirit in our life, that there would just be more of a yieldedness to the leadership and to the, the power, the authority of God the Holy Spirit. And as we've been talking about all weekend, um, in, in the process of doing that, we know that as we are filled up that Christ will be magnified and glorified. And that's what we want to see happen in our lives, personally and collectively, Christ being magnified. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, whenever we talk about the Holy Spirit, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, it's really important that we don't get into a place where all of our time thinking on the subject becomes merely theoretical. Guys, when we're dealing with the Christian life and we're talking about who God is and what God is like and what God does, we need to keep in mind that this truth is personal and this truth is practical. And especially as we're talking about God, the Holy Spirit. Listen, there is a real relationship that exists between the Holy Spirit and us. We learn that the Holy Spirit is a person, right? And because the Holy Spirit is not an it, but a who, because the Holy Spirit is not a something, but a someone, we should all understand that in this relationship that we have with God the Holy Spirit, that it is intended to be personal and practical, and the Bible teaches us in this personal, in this practical relationship, that the Holy Spirit dwells with us, and the Holy Spirit comes within us and upon us. That's pretty intimate. I mean, those are pretty intimate terms when you think about the relationship that we have with God, the Holy Spirit. It eliminates the distance. 
the Holy Spirit is within us and the Holy Spirit comes upon us. And so in this third session that we have together at this conference, I wanna talk about what the Bible teaches regarding the Holy Spirit and the Christian or the Holy Spirit in you and me. What does that relationship look like? And I wanna focus in on those two aspects of relationship first, the Holy Spirit within us. And that's why we started with John chapter 14, verses 16 and 17. There in those verses, look at it again. Jesus said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. And here's the key. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. He's talking about a very personal, intimate knowledge with God, the Holy Spirit, and we can have that personal knowledge because the Holy Spirit dwells with us and is in us. Now, the Bible teaches us that the moment each and every one of us started trusting in Jesus as our one and only Savior, God, the Holy Spirit, came to live inside of us. This is what it means to be born again. This is what it means to be born of the Spirit. In fact, when Paul the Apostle was writing to his buddy Titus, he talks about the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. That is, that the Holy Spirit comes and he creates us as a new creation. There is a new birth that happens. We're born again. That is the Holy Spirit's work. We talked about that in session number two. But the mark that identifies us as born-again people is that the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you and the Holy Spirit dwells inside of me. And that's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the Bible refers to you and me. And remember how we were talking about identity during the Q&A? Here's how the Bible identifies us, that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We're the temple of God. And that's a pretty radical thing to think about because prior to this relationship that has been made accessible for you and me through the person of Jesus Christ, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, this place, the temple, where there was the holy of holies, that was a building located at a specific zip code somewhere on planet Earth, namely Jerusalem. But when Jesus Christ came and died on the cross and rose again from the dead, and that veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom, God moved the Holy of Holies out from a physical building of brick and mortar, and he has now brought the Holy of Holies into flesh and blood, people. And that's pretty radical to think about that you and me are the holy of holies here on planet earth. So everything that the holy of holies was in the tabernacle for 400 years in the town of Shiloh and everything that the holy of holy was there on the temple mount in Jerusalem, all that has been changed to now living, breathing people, the church and God the Holy Spirit resides in you 
and in me. And this is the mark of a real Christian. Romans chapter 8 verse 9 tells us that those who do not have the spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to him at all. Listen, this is what distinguishes us from non-Christians. It's not that we read the Bible. You know that non-Christians read the Bible too? It's not that we go to church. Do you know that non-Christians go to church too? And it's not that we like Christian music. Listen, there are a whole lot of non-Christians that like Christian music too. So what is it that distinguishes us from someone that is not a believer in Christ? It's the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. That is amazing. God the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. God the Holy Spirit lives inside of the person sitting next to you. God the Holy Spirit lives inside of me if we are followers of King Jesus. If we are trusting him as our one and only Savior, we have been born again, and that means the Spirit of God lives inside of us. Now, that indwelling presence of the Spirit that is seen, it's manifested in the work of the Holy Spirit inside of us. And I want to share with you five things that the Bible teaches us about the work of the indwelling presence of the Spirit that is happening in your life and it's happening in my life. Again, because this is what marks us as real believers in Jesus, followers of Christ. And remember, we're talking about a very real personal practical relationship with God the Holy Spirit. So here we go. Number one, the moment the Holy Spirit came to live inside of us, he sealed us. The Holy Spirit sealed us. Jot down this reference, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Let me read this for you. Paul wrote, in him, that's Jesus, you also trusted, that's faith, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. That's, that's evangelism. That's the preaching of the gospel. In whom also, that's Jesus, having believed, that's faith, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. That's the end. This is the reason why this has happened. So that God would be magnified. God would be glorified. But notice that Paul says that the moment we heard the gospel and believed in it, we were born again and the Holy Spirit came to live inside of us and we were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Now let's remember that Paul was writing to a group of Christians that were living in a city called Ephesus. Ephesus was a seaport city in modern-day Turkey, and it was known as the marketplace of Asia. This is where people from the east and the west, they would meet to do business. They would sell and they would purchase. So this was the happening place if you wanted to go and buy stuff. Now, try to imagine there would be a family in Rome who would decide, you know what? There's some stuff that's lacking in our home. I'd like to buy some new furniture. Well, the happening place to go find some exotic stuff that you normally wouldn't find anywhere else there in Italy was to get over to Ephesus. 
And so this family would go to Ephesus and they would be going through shop after shop and there it is. There are the pieces of furniture that would just make their home. And so they talk with the shopkeeper, transaction is made, the money has been paid, the receipt has been given. The deal though is the furniture is too big for this family to take back with them to Rome. So what they would do is they would make arrangements for that piece of furniture to be packaged up. And the shopkeeper would then seal that package. He would seal it with something that would identify that the owners um, of this purchase possession are the people that purchased it. And once it's been sealed, once it's been packaged, the family has already gone back to Rome. Then the shopkeeper would guarantee that that package would make it to the docks. It would be loaded onto the ship. And then the journey onto P.O. Uh, onto the, uh, um, gosh, I'm, I'm spacing out now. Ah, onto the docks of Puteoli. They're in, on the coast of Italy that once the, the item arrives, message would be sent to the family and then the family would come to the docks and they would identify that purchase possession that is marked by their seal. And then the purchase possession would go home because it belongs there because the owner could show the receipt and say, it's mine because I purchased it. Now, when Paul talks about how the Holy Spirit has sealed us, the practical application for you and me is summed up in two words. First, authenticity. The fact that the Holy Spirit lives inside of you and seals you, it authenticates that you are the purchased possession of King Jesus. And so whenever we start arguing with the Lord, saying, well, Lord, it's my life. I want to live my life my way. I want to do my thing. All Jesus has to say is, then show me the receipt. None of us has the receipt to our own life. But Jesus can say, I have the receipt because I purchased you with blood. And the presence of the Holy Spirit, it authenticates that we really belong to Jesus. But the second word that describes the significance of being sealed with the Holy Spirit is assurance. The same way that the shopkeeper guarantees that what was purchased will make it to your front door, God has given to us the Holy Spirit as a guarantee for you and me that we're going to get to heaven. This is what makes Christianity different than all the other religions of the world. If you talk to people of other religions and you ask them, do you know if you're going to go to heaven? They will say, I hope so. I hope to live a good enough life. I hope to be a good enough person to get to heaven. I hope so. The Christian is the only person that can say, I know so. We know that we know that we know that we're going to heaven. That's not arrogance. That's confidence. That's assurance. Any other religion that is relying on good works to get them to heaven, at best they can say, I hope so. But I'll tell you what. When they say that when I die, that's when I'll find out, that is the wrong time to find out. We need assurance now. 
And so the moment a person is born again, the Spirit of God lives inside of them, and we are sealed, and God is saying, I guarantee, I guarantee you, you will make it to heaven. Number two, what is the Holy Spirit doing in our life that he's dwelling within us? Not only does he seal us, but number two, he assures us that we are the children of God. In Romans chapter 8, this is another scripture to mark down. Romans 8, verses 15 and 16. Romans 8, verses 15 and 16, Paul writes, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And you guys have heard that Abba is the, the Hebrew form of daddy. In fact, if you go to Israel, you can still see these little kids. I remember when I was in Israel, I saw a little five-year-old boy with his arms held up and running to his dad saying, Abba, Abba, saying, Daddy, Daddy. And he says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. That's the human spirit that we are the children of God. I love the titles of the Holy Spirit, and here's one of them, that he's called the Spirit of Adoption. We were orphans outside of Jesus. And through the new birth, we were birthed into God's family, but then the Holy Spirit, he placed us into adult standing through adoption. And the reason why, the moment we're born again, the Holy Spirit places us as adults through the process of adoption is because only the adult son has the legal right to the father's heir or inheritance as an heir. In other words, being adopted into the family of God as adult sons means that the moment you give your heart to Jesus, all the promises, all the blessings, all the inheritance of God are, acce are accessible for you to begin to enjoy and apply right now. So we don't have to die to start enjoying the blessings of God. You can start enjoying the riches and the blessings of God the moment you start your walk with Jesus. And it's the Holy Spirit that does that. But here, Paul is emphasizing the fact how the spirit of adoption, the Holy Spirit bears witness with our human spirit that we really are the son of God, that we really are the children of God, that we really belong to him. This again is assurance because God doesn't want us to second guess our relationship with him. And so the big question for us, the practical question is, has the Holy Spirit borne witness with your spirit that you really are the child of God? Because if that hasn't happened, then there's a problem. Now, I want you to think about the Spirit's work this way. And I love this illustration because as a dad, I can relate to it. Imagine you as a child walking with your dad. And as you're walking hand in hand with your daddy, you know that that person that you're holding hands with, he belongs to you and you know that you belong to him. There is no doubt regarding your relationship there. You are his child and he is your dad. But imagine as you're walking along that all of a sudden, unexpectedly, your dad picks you up, holds you tight, swings you around, starts flooding your faces with kisses, and then sets you back down and holds your hand and you continue walking again. That is what Paul is talking about here. The moment you give your heart to Jesus Christ, you know you belong to God. 
And you know that God is your dad. But there are times that the Holy Spirit, in his sovereign wisdom, in his sovereign timing, he will give you that extra measure of assurance. Maybe for some of us it happened during a worship time as we're singing to the Lord and all of a sudden you're just so overwhelmed with the sense of God's presence that you belong to God and God belongs to you. And it's like the Father just picking you up and twirling you around and flooding you with kisses and and you knew that you were God's child. But at that moment, now you know that you know that you know that you're God's child. The Holy Spirit does that. And the Holy Spirit knows when we're struggling with doubt. The Holy Spirit knows when we're tripping over ourselves, feeling like, gosh, I don't even know if I'm saved anymore. I don't even know if I'm a Christian because I I struggle with the sin too often. I keep tripping up. How how can God love me? And at those moments when you're least expecting it, you come to a conference like this or you go to church or you're hanging out with your friends and all of a sudden there is this extra measure, it seems like, where the Lord just picks you up and gives you this assurance. That's the spirit of adoption. Saying you you don't need a doubt if you're part of the family of God. He's your dad. And you're his child. Have you experienced the spirit of adoption overwhelming you with that kind of assurance. Because he does not want any of us to be living the Christian life second-guessing if we're really the children of God and if we're really going to heaven. Everything about Christianity is about assurance. Number three, the indwelling presence of God. Not only has the Holy Spirit sealed us and not only does he bring assurance but he also leads us in God's will. Mark down Romans 8.14. In Romans 8.14, Paul says, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Now, one of the characteristics of someone that's born of the Spirit is that he and she are being led by the Spirit. I think this is something that every single one of us needs to know and understand, and that is that the Holy Spirit wants to lead us And we want to follow, right? And he wants to lead us in truth. He wants to lead us in worship. He wants to lead us in holiness. He wants to lead us in service. He wants to lead us in relationships. He wants to lead us in life. And he wants to lead us in God's will. And I think that that's a specific word for some of us today, this afternoon. We are in such desperate need to know what God's will is for our life. The problem, though, is when we stress out about the place when God is more interested in the process. Too often, we think too small about God's will. We merely think about God's will about the place. Should I move there? Should I not move there? Should I be there? Should I not be there? Oh, man, what is God's will for my life? When God's will for your life is that day by day, by day, we follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit, walking in step with him. That's the process. God's will is not complicated. God's will for our life is if you walk in step with the Holy Spirit on a daily basis, whatever the places that God wants to take you to, whatever that relationship that God wants you to be in, whatever that services that God wants you to be doing, he'll get you there. 
You can't get lost if you're walking in step with the Holy Spirit because he's leading you somewhere, right? And the Holy Spirit, because he's God, he will always lead you in his will. So guys, stop losing sleep about the place. Stop stressing out about the place. Stop freaking out about the place and start making yourself available in the process. That every day you say, you know what? The Holy Spirit lives inside of me and he wants to lead me and I want to follow. So I know that every day if I determine to walk in step with him, I'll never have to think about I want to be in God's will because you are in God's will. The only person that's saying, I want to, you know, I, 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 just, I just need to know. I, it's like, I want to know what God's will is for my life. I want to get to being in God's will. Are you saying that you're not in God's will right now? I'll tell you, you guys being here, sitting, listening to this Bible study, isn't it assuring to know that God's will is happening right now and you're in it? Walking in step with the Spirit. Number four. He empowers us to overcome sin, and he empowers us to practice holiness. Write down Romans 8, 2. Romans chapter 8, verse 2. There it says, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made us free from the law of sin and death. Now, Paul here tells us that the Holy Spirit has set us free from the law of sin and death. Now, it's a law. And the law of sin says everyone must sin because they are sinners in bondage to sin. And the law of death says everyone must die because they are sinners deserving eternal punishment. But then Paul introduces another law. In Romans chapter 8 verse 2, he writes about the law of the Spirit. Now, this is the new and greater law that has replaced the law of sin and death. In other words, when you are under the law of the spirit of life, then you do not have to obey the law of sin and death, even though those are laws. I want you to think of it this way. Yesterday was a long day for me. I got up at 3 in the morning to make sure I got to LAX on time to catch my 6.30 flight from LAX to Vancouver. And as I boarded the plane, that plane started going down the runway and there was lift and the plane stays up in the air for two and a half hours until it descends there at Vancouver. Now, there is a law called the law of gravity. It's a law, right? And if I was to go on top of a building and I jump off the edge of that building, no matter how much wishful thinking I am exercising at that moment, the law of gravity is screaming at me saying, you must come down. And yet for two and a half hours, Air Canada stayed up in the air, even though gravity, the law of gravity was screaming at that plane that carries much tonnage, you must come down. Why is it that that plane stayed up in the air? Because a new, or excuse me, a greater, a greater law replaced the law of gravity for two and a half hours called the law of aerodynamics. And the law of aerodynamics took 
precedence over the law of gravity for two and a half hours, which I am so thankful for, until I safely got to Canada. Now, the law of sin and death, this was the law that you and I were bound to outside of Jesus Christ. That's why it's pointless to tell a non-Christian, just stop sinning. They can't. That's why it's pointless in, in religions to give people the promise that, oh, if you just do good works, you'll go to heaven. No, you can't give that promise to a non-believer because death is a law. That's like me telling you, don't believe in gravity anymore. Now go jump off the building. I don't have the authority to tell you that. So something bigger, something greater, something supernatural has to happen in a person's life that they can say to the law of sin, you must sin. And you can say back, no, I don't have to. And to the law of death, you will die. And for you to look at that law and say, no, I'm going to live forever. What gives us the authority to talk back to these laws? The law of the spirit of life. In Christ Jesus, the Bible tells us that we are no longer sin or slaves to sin. We've been set free. In fact, we've died to it. That means that every time we're faced with the temptation to sin, listen, the devil doesn't make us do anything. Sin doesn't make us do anything. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8 that we are not obligated to give in to the flesh, to give in to the desires of the flesh. That's why he says, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the flesh. That means that we have a choice because we are now under a greater and new principle called the law of the Spirit of, of life, that when sin says sin, you and I in Christ can say no. That means that every time a Christian sins, it's simply because a Christian gives into temptation and chooses to sin. Nobody ever makes you sin. We choose to. And so the bigger question is not why do we sin. The bigger question is why do non-Christians that are free from sin still act like slaves to sin? It goes back to the identity issue. They forget who they are in Jesus. It goes back to a worship issue. It's because their flesh has now taken precedence over the worth of God. But we're alive and we're free. And God gives to us the power to overcome sin. And that's why you need to write down Romans 8 verses 12 and 13. Romans 8 verses 12 and 13 says, Dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. For if you live by its dictates, you will die. But if through the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. And jot down Galatians 5.16. Galatians 5.16. I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Those are assurances. So I like to understand when Jesus said to that woman caught in the very act of adultery, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. So there's two ways that you can or read that statement. Some people read it as, Neither do I condemn you. No, go and sin no more. Or 
It's a declaration of freedom where Jesus says, neither do I condemn you, so go, sin no more. You're not a prisoner of this anymore. You're not bound to this anymore. By the power of the Spirit, enjoy freedom. Go, sin no more. You've been justified. You're righteous. You're no longer under the law of sin and death. Now you're under the law of the Spirit of life. And then number five, the Holy Spirit is transforming us and conforming us into the image of Christ. So jot down this passage. 2 Corinthians 3.18. 2 Corinthians 3.18. Paul writes, We all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. God's principal work that he is doing in your life and in my life is a work of change. God's Spirit is transforming us from one degree of glory to another into the likeness of Jesus. That is the goal. Because we were all created, humanity, Adam and Eve, we were created in the image of God, and the moment sin entered into the story, that image was shattered. The moment a person is born again, that starts the process of renewing that broken image. We started as creatures made in the image of God only for that image to be shattered. And when we're born again, Jesus comes and redeems people with the shattered image of God and his spirit restores that image that when we get to heaven, we will be in full completely bearing his image without any cracks, without any stains, And this process is called sanctification, and it's the work of the Holy Spirit, and he's doing it right now. As you're sitting here listening to this word, Paul the Apostle writing to the Ephesians said that Christ is going to be so faithful and loyal and dedicated to his bride, the church, that on a daily basis, he will wash us, he will sanctify us, he will purify us, washing us with the water of the word of God. And so you might be thinking, well, I'm just listening to an interesting message, an interesting Bible study, but God has a bigger picture in mind, a greater work that he has in mind, and that is he's making us more like Jesus right now. This is the end. That's why in Romans 8, 28 and 29, it says, for we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. And I've met people that say, well, I, I don't know what that verse means because it's like my life has been falling apart and I've, I've suffered and I've experienced difficulties and challenges and, and where's the good? Where's the good happening in my life? The problem is, is you're thinking too small. You think if you just get temporary good, temporal good, that'll fix your problems in life. No, God has a bigger thing in mind because the good is defined for us in the following verse in verse 29. So here's the complete package. For we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are the called according to his purpose for or because whom he foreknew, he also predestined that we should be conformed into the image of his son. Good is always happening. God is committed to your good. 
Because God made a promise in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, that everything he starts, he will complete. And what is that good that he is committed to? That he is going to use every pain, every suffering, every tear, as well as every laughter, every joy, every time of ease. He will not waste a single event or moment in our life from completing his mission and that is to conform us into the likeness of Jesus. I mean, if you understand that, that should bleed into everything in regards to our thought process. Again, going back to the whole thing of what is God's will for my life? Where does he want me to live? Well, the simple answer is where are you going to become more like Jesus? In ministry, like, should I take that position as, you know, as they're inviting me to come and be their pastor, or should I just go and be in? Well, the question is, is where are you going to become more like Jesus? And all of a sudden, we're going to be, if we understand that, we can start embracing all the different seasons in life and understand Jesus is not wasting a single moment of this. As painful as it is right now, I understand Jesus is more interested in my long-term good than my temporary comfort. God is committed to keeping his promise. And one day, when we stand before the Lord, we are going to worship him and thank him that he, com- he was committed to his promise. So all of that stuff is happening inside of you, inside of me right now, because the Holy Spirit lives in you, lives in me. There's the fruit of the Spirit that is visible, which is Christ-like character. There's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all that stuff, God the Holy Spirit is working in your life and in mine. But before we finish, there is one more relationship that we have with the Holy Spirit that we need to talk about. Remember we said that we can't keep our talk about the Holy Spirit as merely academic. Guys, it's personal, it's practical. And not only does the Holy Spirit dwell within us, but listen, the Bible also teaches us, we read it in Acts 1.8, that the Holy Spirit comes upon us. He comes upon us. And you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, we know from Acts chapter 1, verses 4 on through 8, that this experience, this relationship that Jesus is talking about, he specifically gives it the name baptism with the Holy Spirit. This isn't a term that the church made up. This isn't something that theologians sitting in their ivory towers came up with some classic, you know, smart way to label this experience. This comes directly from the mouth of Jesus. So no matter what your background may be, and even with all the abuses you might have seen under the name of the baptism with the Spirit, one thing that we need to all agree on is that this is a biblical experience that Jesus made direct reference to. But I think that the reason why people get weirded out when they hear the term baptism with the Spirit is because of a lack of information and because of a whole lot of immaturity. We've seen practices and abuses that are labeled the baptism with the Holy Spirit that resemble nothing of what Jesus tells us about the baptism with the Holy Spirit. 
Jesus tells us here about this experience where power comes upon you and me as believers so that we would be witnesses for him in this world. We need to understand that this verse goes hand in hand with Mark 16, 15. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. It goes hand in hand with Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. When Jesus went to heaven, or before Jesus went to heaven, he set forth for the church, and that includes you and me, a very clear mandate. And that is to go into the world and to proclaim the good news about God's Son and God's salvation. Because this is the message that saves people. Paul the Apostle said in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. For in it, he says, for in it, we see the power, the power to save. So that means that we don't help the gospel in salvation, but the gospel itself is God's power in saving people. And Romans chapter 10 tells us that the way that the gospel is dispensed to people is through redeemed people. Well, we have the message. The message is the gospel. We even have the passion. We even have the motive, and that's the resurrection of Christ. But what is going to launch us into the world and propel us to supernaturally be energized to proclaim this gospel with authenticity, with conviction, with saving power. It's when the church moves forward with the gospel empowered with supernatural strength. The power of the Holy Spirit and this experience is called the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Jesus here, when he... When he speaks of power, Luke takes that word power and writes it in the Greek form as dunamis. Dunamis means achieving power, accomplishing power. We get our English words dynamic, dynamo, and even dynamite from this word dunamis. God is saying that he will supply a supernatural power that is bigger than you. Because we all, at one point or another, we can all tell stories of how, though we knew we were to share the gospel, we just lacked the courage to do it. Right? I was talking with some of our guys at the pastor school, and, and we were studying through the book of Acts, and they made the comment, man, I wish, I wish I just didn't have any fear, but I was, I, I wish I, I could just be a courageous guy, just not a, a person that has fear, but courageous. And, and I had to stop him and I said, well, how do you have courage without fear? Right? I mean, isn't that the whole thing about being courageous? 
courageous implies that fear exists, but there is a pressing through your fears, and that's why we label you as courageous. Guys, what the baptism with the Holy Spirit does is it empowers us with a supernatural, bigger kind of power that enables us by faith to press through our fears and to open our mouth and to make the gospel clearly known to people who need it. That's why evangelism can't happen without God's power, at least effectively can't happen. Jesus said, if you want to be effective witnesses for me, that word witnesses, in the Greek, it's the word martyrus. We get our English word martyr, which helps us understand the meaning of a witness because a witness is someone who testifies to the things that they've seen and heard. So dying for Jesus doesn't make you a martyr. It just simply proves that you already were one. And Christ is saying that there is a supernatural kind of boldness and power that he wants to just infuse us with, overflow us with. That when we preach the gospel, it literally makes impact on the people around us. I love, I love how Jesus speaks of this experience as how like living waters, torrents of living waters just overflowing from our lives. And try to imagine a glass an empty glass, that was you without Jesus. But then you take that empty glass and you put it under a running faucet and fill it to the brim. Now that's who you are in Jesus, you are complete. But keep that full glass under the tap and let the water keep running, now what do you have? You have an overflowing glass and when you've got a glass overflowing with water, it gets everything around it wet. That is evangelism. Guys, I think we made evangelism a bit too complicated, a bit too man-centered. Guys, evangelism is you and me simply broadcasting the good news as it overflows from our life. We are bragging about Jesus. We're bragging about his salvation. We're bragging about how our God is able to save. We're bragging that our God declared, I am the Lord and I alone save. And when you're empowered by the Holy Spirit and that message goes forth, it just gets everyone around you wet with it. And what would the church look like if you get a whole bunch of people that are overflowing like that and you get them all together in community and they're just living life out for Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit, man, now you've got communities getting wet with the gospel. Now you have cities getting wet with the gospel. Now you have entire um, states and nations getting wet with the gospel. I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was, a, he was the, the personal medical assistant to Lord Horder, who was the physician to the royal family in the mid-1920s, and he was next in line. Had he stayed as a physician, as a doctor, he would have become the official doctor for the royal family of Great Britain. But he left it all because God called him to be a pastor. And he eventually became the pastor in London at Westminster Chapel. And, and he wrote, uh, or, or many books were written that was based on his sermons, but I love his definition of revival. He said that revival is when you get, when you get a bunch of people that are baptized with the Holy Spirit and you get them all together in one place. 
And everyone is just overflowing with the dynamic power of the Holy Spirit. So the question is, I know that we all understand the need for the world to hear the gospel. Listen, politicians are not going to bring the change that we need to see happen nationally. Even religion will not be able to bring the change. Where we're going to see change happen is only when God's people, the church, recognize again that it's by the power of the Holy Spirit who enables us and propels us into this thing called the Great Commission, that it's in that dynamic, supernatural kind of power that happens through preaching that causes the unbeliever to ask the question again, what does this mean? That's the problem. Non-Christians aren't asking that anymore because they don't see the supernatural in the church anymore. On the day of Pentecost, when they saw a real display of the power of God, non-believers were asking the question, what does this mean? And the church had a voice. Non-believers aren't asking that anymore. Because what they see are a lot of lifeless, powerless, dead churches. But what would it look like if the church would gather and say, Lord... We are your people, full of your spirit, and we're now asking you just overflow our lives because we understand the importance of evangelism, and I understand the importance of preaching the gospel, and I understand that my, my makeup, the way I'm wired, the way I'm framed up, there's a whole lot of fear that's there, but Lord, how can you help me to press through my fears and with boldness, with conviction, and in power proclaim the gospel to the world? And God says, let me empower you. And I think one of the best ways to illustrate that is the story in Zechariah 4. God had commissioned a man by the name of Zerubbabel, the governor of his people, not only to lead his people out from Persia back into Jerusalem, but God had commissioned him and his partner, Joshua, the high priest, with the task of rebuilding the temple that was destroyed by the Babylonians 70 plus years earlier. And when Zerubbabel got to Jerusalem, he found nothing but Jerusalem in rubbles. And there were mountains of rubble. And, and he's looking at this and thinking, I've got, how am I supposed to take all of that rubble and rebuild a temple? And he was feeling discouraged. He was overwhelmed by the task. And don't we feel the same way? Jesus said, go to the whole world. Jesus said, go to every nation. And here we are in Canada thinking, how are we supposed to do that, Lord? I know how ordinary I am, and I know how ordinary we are. And Jesus has put in front of us a big mission. And just like Zerubbabel, he was overwhelmed by what God had called him to do. And so God sends a prophet by the name of Zechariah to come and bring him a message. And he begins with an illustration. He said, check out this vision. He said, I saw a seven-branch lampstand. You know the menorah, the seven-branch Jewish lampstand? He said, I see this thing, and, and it was the job of the priest to every day to fill each of those cups with oil in order to keep that lamp lit in the temple and in the tabernacle. But in the vision, he saw two olive trees and coming out of these olive trees were these pipes, and it went into a bowl. And these, from this bowl, we see these 
these pipes that went straight into the cups of these lampstands, constantly pumping it with oil. So we see a lampstand that is burning without any human effort, without any human influence. Because oil was being provided supernaturally. And after the illustration comes the message, Zechariah says, this is the word of the Lord for you, Zerubbabel. It's not by might. It's not by power. But it's by my spirit, says the Lord. But God doesn't stop there. This is so awesome. And then the prophet looks at all the rubble, the obstacles that, that seem to be standing in the way from him com- completing his mission. And Zechariah looks at all the rubble. He looks at the obstacle, the, the mountain, and he says, Who are you, O mountain? I will bring you down and level you before my servant Zerubbabel. Wow. Zerubbabel, you'll complete the mission because this is God's mission. And when we're doing the work of the Great Commission, it's not about God joining us. It's about us joining God. It's not about asking God to bless our effort, but it's asking God, empower us with your power so we can do what you've called us to do. Here's the closing word. Vance Havner born in 1901, went to heaven in 1986. He became the pastor of his church at the age of 12. Vance Havner. Billy Graham said that he was one of the most influential men in his life. So if you could get anything written by Vance Havner, that's worth getting. Super devotional, very pastoral. But Vance Havner said this, we are not going to move this world by criticism of it, nor conformity to it, but by the combustion within it of lives ignited by the Spirit of God. Church has got it backwards today, right? How many churches do you see that all they're doing is criticizing the problems that are happening in Parliament or at the White House or Capitol Hill? There's plenty of marches of protest and picket signs. Or the other extreme, how many churches do we see just conforming to the world, saying, hey, the more we look like the world, then we can attract people. While the world is staring at the church thinking, if you're trying so hard to look like me, why should I want to be like you? But what's going to bring change in the world is the combustion within it of lives ignited by the Spirit of God. That's why this conference is such a big deal. That's why this topic is such a big deal. You see, God saved us, but he didn't take us to heaven the moment we became born again, but he left us here. Not because he doesn't want us home. The Bible tells us that he takes pleasure in the death of his saints. It doesn't mean that God's morbid. It means that God is so longing for us to finally be home that even though we're mourning the loss of our loved ones, God is rejoicing that their suffering is finally over and they're finally home where God has always wanted them to be. And yet, even though God's longing for us to be home is great, he still loves the world so much. He says, you know what? I'm going to leave you on earth for a little while longer so that you can tell these people about Jesus So there can be more people that are a part of this family, a part of this home. 
and I think of the story of the man that was possessed by a legion of demons. And you remember when Jesus delivered him, casting all those demons out of him, and they went into 200 plus pigs, and they all ran off the cliff, and they drowned. And the Bible tells us that this man was then clothed, he was in his right mind, and then he said to Jesus, Jesus, let me follow you. I want to go wherever you go. We all understand that. We we all say that. But here's the answer that I think that most of us, if not all of us, didn't expect to come. Jesus said, no. What do you mean, no? I mean, uh, I get that. It's like the moment you give your heart to Jesus, all right, Lord, I'm done. Take me to heaven now. I just want to be with you. And Jesus said, no. But then he tells this man, but instead, go back home and tell your friends and family of everything that God has done for you. And so he went back home and told his friends and family everything that Jesus did for him because in his mind he understood Jesus is God. And so right now, we wish we can go to to heaven today and that's a good desire to have because we know we don't belong here. But every day that the Lord hasn't taken us home yet, it's because Jesus said, not yet because I still trust you with the gospel. And I'm trusting you to be faithful on this mission. But I know you. I know how you need power. You need strength. So yield your heart to me. Yield yourself to me. And let me fill you with supernatural power. And the way practically that that power is seen It's never going to be apart from faith. It it, it involves faith. So whenever we see an opportunity to share the gospel, yes, you'll feel nervous. Yes, you'll feel scared. In all the years that I've been doing evangelism, you would think that by now I shouldn't feel fear, but I do. It's still the most terrifying thing for me when the Lord says, go and talk to that stranger. But I could either respond to that fear with unbelief and say, you know what, I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. And that doesn't glorify God. Or I can exercise faith and say, Lord, you told me that that person needs to hear the gospel and I am a vehicle by which you'll deliver the gospel to that person. And even though I'm terrified right now, by faith, I believe that you are going to meet me with power as I share the gospel because the gospel is that saving, sanctifying word of God. And have you ever had the experience that you're terrified to open your mouth and say that first word. But the moment you exercise faith and with all the shaky voice that's coming out of you, you start the conversation. And the moment you open your mouth, now they can't get you to shut up about Jesus. What happened? The moment you exercised faith in obedience to his great commission, God then supplied his power for you to be an effective witness for Christ. So every single one of us, we have the potential to be courageous Christians. Even you that feel the most terrified. You that feel the most terrified, you actually have the opportunity to show the greatest courage. And God is the one who supernaturally enables us to do that. So he's within us, working out all those things, making us like Jesus, and he comes upon us, empowering us to be effective witnesses for Jesus. That's what the Spirit does. It's awesome. And we have the relationship with God the Holy Spirit in that. Was that clear? 
Was that understandable? I mean, does that just make you love Jesus more? Does that just make you in awe of the Spirit even more? That's the life that he wants us to live. That is what normal Christianity looks like. Anything apart from that is abnormal. Well, then tonight, Lord willing, we're going to regroup and we get to talk about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. What is it? How do we know what gifts we have? How do, what does it look like when we operate in the gifts of the Spirit and, and moving into a time of just waiting on the Lord and just seeing how the Lord might want to give us some gifts that either you don't have right now or gifts that you don't know that you have, but God wants to reveal it to you? Because the Bible says that every born-again believer has at least one spiritual gift. And tonight we'll talk about that. And so I'm super excited about this evening because I know that if we understand that God not only has given us a mission, but he he wants to energize us through the operation of spiritual gifts. Listen, when you get a group of people like that in your churches, the church here and the church there, the church that's gathered here right now, it will not remain the same. Expect change. Expect power. Expect maturity. Expect the glory of Christ. Can't wait. So Lord, thank you for your word and thank you for your truth and thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you, God, the Holy Spirit, that you dwell within us. Thank you, God, the Holy Spirit, that you come upon us with overflowing power. And we pray now that as we process all this information that we've been learning together, that you'll show us how to practically apply it in life. Bless us now, Lord, with more of Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys.